welcome back, Ag Watchers. Uh, you've got myself, Andrew Whitelaw, also known as a Wheat Watcher, also known as a Flying Scotsman. We've got Matt Douglas, also known as the Livestock Leader, also known as Meat Watcher, also known as the Danger from Dandenong. Yeah. And we've got a special guest, uh, the very opinionated, uh, the, the man of the moment, the uh, the, the light of the sheep industry, we've got uh, Andrew Freshwater. Andrew, welcome. How's it going? Pretty good. I don't know if, well, I guess everyone's got opinions, but yeah, I'll, I better put my hand up for that. <laughs> so, Andrew, Andrew, just for just for for the uh, for the the loyal listeners, who are you? Where where are you from? What do you do? Yeah, I'm uh, got a bit of country in northeast Victoria and New South Wales and around the traps. So we we farm. Um, shedding composite sheep, so they're sort of an ultra white, which is a Dorper Poldorset cross, and we've got a bit of white Suffolk in there as well. So um, we farm a farm a bunch of those, and um, expanding that out, and I'm also a senior agri advisor to Blue Mount Capital, which is one of Australia's largest investment banks. So pr- pr- pretty diverse. And before before we get into this podcast, Andrew, I just want to I want to set some ground rules. Sure. We we've uh, we, we've spoke a lot on the phone and, and we had a good chat on on Monday. Once we wind you up, yeah, you'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so so I just got to say we, we're we're going to stick to a couple of topics. We we've got we've got about thirty to forty minutes, and and I know that, that Andrew we we could we could fix the whole industry today. Uh, but we'll, we'll just keep it to a couple of topics. And, and and one of the interesting ones is I didn't realize it was so controversial. Uh, and one to probably start off on is EID tags. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought they were entirely controversial either. Um, apparently they are. <laughs> so, so, so I guess because you, you put up a comment the other day uh, saying that people... I'm not, I won't quote directly, but I think you said people were brain dead if they couldn't use EIDs. No, I, I actually said they were Luddites, which uh, was possibly a little harsh. It was just a, a conversation we were having here, and um, and I thought I'd just I'd put it up there verbatim. Because so, yeah. EIDs are, are compulsory in Victoria, aren't they? Sure, yeah, that's right. Is, is that the only state that's compulsory? Yeah, I, I think it is at the moment. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and what's it? So, what's the what's the concern for those that don't want it? The luddites, as you term Andrew, what's the um, what's their biggest kind of hassle about not going down this path? What's the issue? So, it's not a cost, surely. Yeah, the, the common thread does seem to be a cost. Uh, there's a few people seem to be a bit worked up about um, being told to do stuff, um, like it being enforced. But I actually think EIDs may have been sold the wrong way. It's it's really only inventory management. Um, we've been using electronic tags in our sheep since 1999. Um, and it just, to me, makes sense that if you've got a, a reasonably expensive item like a sheep or a cow, but in this case a sheep, that you monitor, well, you've got the ability to track it, monitor it, um, utilise data that you collect along the way to get a better outcome. Because none of our land is getting cheaper. The sheep certainly aren't getting cheaper. Um, and you've, you've got to make every post a winner, but um, I, I guess a lot of people run different styles of operations where they mightn't be looking for the same kind of um, um, information and outputs as, as what I am. Yeah, 
So your model, your model is a little bit different as well, isn't it, Andrew? In that you you have quite a lot of leased land, don't you? Is that right? What can you just quickly explain? Yeah. How, how you... So we lease a bunch of country, um, and we're also just getting into starting to buy a lot more country. Um, uh, obviously, interest rates are cheap, so it's good to take advantage of that. But um, I, I like to uh, I like to be able to, you know, if I've got a bunch of lambs, to know on average how they're growing. So you know, run through an auto drafter with a panel reader, and, and be able to draft out any that aren't doing so well. It gives them some um, some preferential treatment, or be able to say, well, on average these lambs are growing at 250 grams a day or X days till they get turned off. Or here's a group that consistently aren't putting on as much weight. Perhaps we just get rid of them now because our cost of production will be too high on them. Uh, and you can look at a, a range of different things with with the U side as well. Because that's 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 the, one of the, one of the things is that it is a, a case of improving your productivity through knowing that little bit more data and being more strategic, other than treating it just as a mob based thing. It's more individualized. But but going back to something you said, you said you've been into. Did you say 1999 that you've been into them? Yeah, I first saw electronic tags in New Zealand in 1999. And um, I was involved with some sheep guys over there and I thought, geez, that's a good idea. Um, they were, they were um, like the button cattle tags. Yeah. I jammed them into lamb's ears over here and I had all these poor lambs walking around with their head on one side. But yeah, it was a, it was a way to make a start. Um, and I thought, well, we need to make a start. Like if we're serious about the sheep game, we've got to make a start. So, and, so, so, so in 1999, what did it cost per, per tag? I don't even remember now, to be honest. Yeah. But, but, so what, what does it cost now then? I think we get our tags for about $1.35 or $1.40. And Matt, the question for you, what is the cost of a sheep? Oh, well, you can, I mean, per head, you, you know, it could be depending on the sheep, mate, but it can be oh, yeah, 200 bucks is not out of the question. So less than half a percent. Yeah. So it's not, it's not the cost. I don't think cost can really truly be the, the sort of the argument because like it doesn't really cost that much really. And obviously you've got, like you, you I think you made it raise a point, Andrew, that over the course of a, of a year's life, it's, you know, what is it? $2,500 you're going to make from that? Uh, or well, some, something like that. Yeah. Depending, depending what the animal is. Yeah. It's um, I, I do think though that, the, the, there's there's a great case in point here that yeah we can collect all this data. I've been sort of arguing with the NLIS guys for years. Why can't we put individual sheep on the database? And they keep telling me it's too difficult, which I just find bizarre because it's a it's a bloody number. Like stick it in the database. It doesn't matter if the the heading of that file has got cattle or sheep. It's just a number. And if yeah. we're serious about about Australia with their now, we keep talking clean and green and traceability and everything. Well, we've actually got to do it. Um, I spent yesterday afternoon with a um, head of a food company in Melbourne, <clears throat> and um, he just said, I, I just I can't get my head around why people won't do this. They're offering to pay $10 extra per lamb if it's got traceability and also pay for the tag. So there's, mm. there's people getting pretty serious about this. Well, I think, like, I... I've got I've got a slightly different opinion, and there's two forms of traceability on sheep, or, or two important reasons. You've got the the consumer traceability, where you know Jenny in Fitzroy wants to know that Dorothy the lamb comes from, 
you know, ex farm near Bridgewater, and that's beautiful. And when she goes and has her, you know, dinner party with Tiffany and Teresa, they can all talk about how great this this lamb was and how they knew which lamb it was. But there's another traceability as well, and, that, and that's good because it, there's a market value and there's a there's a price on it. And we like from the UK there. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not going to pump up the U, UK's tires, but they're way ahead of it in terms of traceability on on meat from a retail point of view. Everything has got a picture of a farmer on it from who actually yeah. produced it. But there's another traceability thing that I think is actually more important and that we, uh, we've probably dodged a bullet in Australia in terms of COVID has actually helped with our you know, biosecurity to an extent. Like we had an emerging problem in Asia of African swine fever. And I think if COVID hadn't have occurred, there was probably a pretty good chance that we'd have had a co- um, ASF outbreak in, in Australia. But it's not, that obviously wouldn't affect sheep. <clears throat> but you got things like FMD in Nepal and parts of Asia and uh, other parts of the world, um, which if it got into the industry would be an absolute disaster. And and I think the cost of an EID would would more than weigh up to the advantage of getting an FMD intrusion under under control. Quick yeah, shop. So. Yeah, definitely. And I think also if you look on a on a global um, meat price point of view, Australia's sitting in a pretty good, pretty enviable position for what we're getting at farm gate price. Um, <clears throat> so we we shouldn't be too comfortable and just think that the consumer is going to continually pay more without getting more. Um, <clears throat> so now that we're all getting decent money, um, or more than decent money, we should be putting some of that extra income into into improving um, our, our our products. But and I think the traceability is a classic one, um, particularly as you say with the with the COVID side of things. That's probably been a big wake up call. Like, did, did it come from a lab? Did it come from food? How did it move around? Um, yeah, there's probably a lot of, there's probably obviously more questions than answers um, and, and being able to trace that reasonably quick and electronically to me would make a lot more sense than our current paper-based system that can take a, a long time and it's only on a mob basis. So, I could- like you mentioned that there's uh, um, a marketing benefit to the traceability, like because you, you obviously in with what you're doing, you're dealing a lot with the direct customer as opposed to necessarily just a lot of sale yards and, and whatnot. So you've got a direct interaction with those customers. And and you've obviously you're talking about a, like a premium, ten dollars a lamb premium is 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 strong. Yeah. Uh, but in your <clears throat> conversations, has and this is—I know this is a topic that you you like, and that you're 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 a fan of this this way of farming, uh, regenerative agriculture. You know, we've uh, we we've spoken to to people in recent times, one on on the pro side, one on the probably uh, sort of skeptical side. Are are you seeing any sort of value from from consumers, from you know, supermarkets, retailers, in saying we'll pay a premium for for regenerative agriculture? And is that an area that you'd consider going down? I first got involved in holistic farming back in the mid 1990s. Um, I was lucky enough to be taught by Stan Parsons and Alan Savory and Bruce Ward. Uh, and I'd consider that to be real regenerative farming. Um, so holistic farming is, is basically it's a decision making process. 
So you, you run through a, you know, a bunch of different ways to make decisions and whether that be that you, you want to use chemical or you want to use fertiliser or whatever you want to do, it's just the decisions around that. I think currently regenerative agriculture has gone off the rails that it's sort of a bit peace, love and mung beans. And, um, and there's probably some, well, there obviously is some well-meaning people there who I think probably need to go back and get a grounded education in holistic management to understand what they're managing. Um, you know, you've only got to read on social media some of the some of the marketing hype and it's bordering on being a cult, which is, obviously everyone wants to look after their land, everyone wants to do the right thing, but there's got to be some reality in there and there's got to be some, some hard facts. And just saying that we're sequestering more carbon and that's going to save the world is nice, but you need to prove it. Um, it's a bit like going out and buying well, actually going out and buying rams that don't have land plan or genomic data, you know, that's the best ram because I say it is. That doesn't really hold a lot of weight. So we've got a, we've definitely got a foot in the regenerative ag cam. Um, we've also got a background in ag science, so I, I kind of straddle both things, but I use it as a decision-making process. We use chemicals, we use fertiliser, we also use cell grazing, we also try to minimise our chemicals and minimise our fertiliser because it's it saves money. Um, so I think you've just got to, you've got to, like all of these things, you've just got to be responsible with the way you do things. Um, and that mightn't give the right marketing angle for, for some guys. I, I don't know. Like, it's a contentious issue and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, I think. But, but it's part of the problem though, Andrew, with that regenerative farming label uh, is that there isn't really a clear definition as to what it exactly is. Uh, and therefore, you know, I mean, you could you, what you do in the holistic space, you say has elements of regenerative farming from what I'm hearing, but you wouldn't label yourself as regenerative necessarily. Um, you know, and then there's other regenerative farmers that, you know, would be behaving in a different but, but, fashion. But, but, because, but, yeah. but Matt, there's probably, there's no reason why Andrew can't call himself a regenerative farmer because there's no real hard and fast rules to say that he yeah. isn't. That's my point. That's yeah, my point. That there's, yes. not, there's not a, you know, there's not a structure around it that says this is what regenerative farming is, and it's widely, widely held to be, you know, believed to be the case. That, it's not like it's know. not like non-GM versus GM. You're either GM or you're non-GM. I, I think there's actually some some real issues coming in time because at some point the consumer is going to say, well, this this brand in inverted commas regenerative agriculture is nice. We've heard of it for a few years. What does it actually mean? And give us some more information around it. And at that point, if 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 producers that are using that term say, um, well, it means this, and then the next person down the road says something different, it's gonna really confuse people. And I think that's a real danger point. But the other thing I don't like is it's it's actually pitting farmer against farmer and neighbor against neighbor. And I think that's I don't care what you call your farming system, it just needs to be responsible and profitable. But anything that pits farmer against farmer and neighbour against neighbour is is wrong and no one should be entering into that because we're all in this together. We all spend a lot of our time by ourselves and we all need to assist each other. So I think, you know, labelling people is really not the right way to go. And it can lead to unintended, unintended consequences as like, you know, mental health issues and undue stress and all those sort of things. And that's that's no good for anyone. Yeah, and I think that's, I agree with you because you see on social media a lot of, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. 
But the reality is the only things you shouldn't be doing are things that are legal. But if, if you choose to run your farm the way you run the farm within the confines of the law, well, that's up to you. And if you lose money and you have to go bankrupt eventually, then so be it. But how you run your farm is, is really up to the individual. Like and you don't know what pressures people are having. Like they might be going home at night tearing their hair out and they go to speak to their neighbour and they, and they suddenly get told that, you know, you shouldn't be sticking a cow horn in by the full moon sort of thing. It's, it's the last person someone wants to hear if they're going through some real pressures and, and probably if they're embarrassed to talk about it or, or bring it out in the open, that's, that's detrimental and it's no good to anyone. But as I said, I think there's a healthy balance. I just don't think we're there yet. But have, have you found anything like, but, but has anyone, any of those retailers asked about it and said, we'll pay you a premium or is it just, no. is it not quite on the radar yet? No, no, I've heard plenty of people talk about it. Plenty of retailers say our consumers want it, but no one's going to pay extra. <laughs> but maybe it's not a, a, it might end up that it's not a, it's not a premium. There might be discounts. Um, so perhaps there's discounts coming in time if you don't, fit certain ways of, of producing your, your product, whatever that might be. So I think well, you made the point too, um, and Andrew, that uh, if you can't measure what you're doing and, and actually kind of have some level of proof um, of what you're doing is, is valid, then it's very hard to ask for a premium. You know, no one's going to pay, yeah. pay a premium if they can't see the evidence of what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you never go to a you never go to a farmer and they tell you, "Well, we we produce second rate beef," or our sheep are our sheep are just okay. They're not the best we can do, and that's fair. Everyone's got a lot of pride, but you you've got to be able to validate that by information and data, and benchmarking it against industry or local contemporaries or something. So, like a lot of a lot of talk we've had so far has really been about that retail side of things in australia yeah. but one of the one of the things that matt and i have spoke a lot about is the future of of red meat yeah and that over time like i know this sounds bad but i'm not all that interested in what the australian consumer is is what their preference is really too much because they're not they're what well they're less than 50 percent of our demand for for both lamb and, and cattle and the rest yeah, but but what what really matters most to the holistically to the industry is is really what people in Indonesia or Vietnam or Thailand or China want and in India in the future, not for yeah. beef though. So so I guess that's that's our sort of concern is that we do a lot of work within the industry to make one of our customers who is going to be one of the smallest customers at some point in the future happy. So that's that's an issue, uh, but you also touched upon mental health as well, and, and that's a sort of like my my wife's a psychiatrist, so that's something we talk about in the house often. And, and Matt Matt nearly got sick. That's how they yes. met. That's how that's how they met, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, on, on the couch for a um, for an interview. <laughs> and uh, and Matt nearly got sectioned yesterday when he visited her to drop off some stuff. Uh, <laughs> but the are you like? We, Matt and I are both re regionally based, but we're not quite, I still consider Ballarat and our sort of Western District area to be sort of part of, um, part of the greater Melbourne area nowadays, but where you are and, and, and you sort of talks with 
people in, in ag areas. Is support improving or decreasing or is it unchanged for, for that mental health side of things? I think most government services are becoming harder and harder to come by and people are having to travel further distances and, um, and wait longer to see professionals. So, um, and that's, that's obviously tough. Um, it's becoming increasingly harder to get health professionals into you know, further out areas. Um, I don't think it's improving, but I think what is improving really well is the openness to speak about problems. And there's certainly a lot of people with web pages and social media presences and, and all that sort of thing, um, really encouraging that. And, and I think that's great. It's certainly not a stigma anymore if you happen to say to someone, I'm not traveling too well uh, and put your hand up and you see more and more people doing that. And I think that's, that's to be applauded. Um, when I was growing up, it was, I grew up in East Gippsland, it was seen as a, as a sign of, of weakness and, and it's certainly not seen like that now. And I think that that's, that's great for the industry. Like you know, one, one suicide is one suicide too many and anything that can be done throughout the rural community to stop that in, in early stages, it's gotta be good, but it's, it's tough to get one-on-one um, -on -one, uh, consultations with doctors, but you know, perhaps now, Zoom might take over and people might be able to speak to psychiatrists via Zoom. Um, so I think we'll get around it with technology with a bit of luck. Yeah, because there is a lot, like, there was a really interesting one. Uh, an old friend of mine's in WA, uh, he set up that six Bs, mm. uh, which is like a, well, it's not a mental health thing, but it's really. It's almost like a men's shed, like an online yeah. men's shed, or they catch, and they catch up as well in person. Like a, a men's shed with beer and barbecues. Yeah, right. And, and they sort of catch up every every couple of months, and I, I just regret that we're not not in WA. And they catch up, have a night, take the swags, and and by the looks of it, they just have some pretty good conversations with another. And because that's one of the things you forget is that rural communities, I suppose, are getting smaller. And yeah, so, they are. And especially, you know, probably when you're younger, you're in the footy team and whatnot. But as you get a bit older, you 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 might not be able to you know kick a ball around as as often and you might you you end up spending a lot more time at home. And it's probably something that we've all done in the last, like city folk have probably experienced a bit of that in the last twelve months, uh, sort of being in lockdown. You know, farmers have been self-isolating for hundreds of years. And well, I found it interesting. Three years ago, I had a pretty bad accident on farm and smashed both my legs and wound up down in hospital in Melbourne for a month or so, or a few months and had to learn to walk again and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, they, uh, they, they stuck me on a flying doctor's plane and sent me home. And, um, and I said, okay, so what backup service do we get? And I said, you'll be right. So um, yeah, you just sort of got, got to make the most of it. Um, so I, yeah, I can understand where people are coming from. That was reasonably tough because um, you're lying there thinking, okay, well, I've got, two broken legs, one's got five plates and 21 screws in it and was going to be amputated. Um, I better make the most of this. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a tough one. I remember we went into the, uh, into the local hospital and um, for, for the first thing of physio and they said, oh, you need to get a referral from your GP. And I said, well, but you know, I've, got, I've got all this stuff from a surgeon from a hospital in Melbourne. And he said, no, nah, sorry, mate, you need to go and get a referral from a GP. So I cracked the shits and just got hold of a physio down in Melbourne and started going down to Melbourne and been going down there ever since on a you know two or three weekly basis, 
So you've just really, it's, it was so frustrating. You've got to, you've got to kind of take control of it yourself almost. Whereas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so moving on a bit, um, you, you've, you've got a lot of sheep, all, all meat focused. Yeah. yeah, that's right. What, what's your views on wool? Why, why aren't you doing wool? <laughs> um, wool's a great product. I, I think I think wool in Australia needs to be marketed differently. Um, it can be argued that it's been in terminal decline for quite a few years now. Um, I'm probably Andrew, do you mean do you mean thing. marketed do you mean marketed to the farmer differently, or marketed to when you're saying in Australia it needs to be marketed differently? I'm, I'm getting the impression you don't mean to the customer. Uh, I think Australian wool needs to be looking at brands like ZQ Merino and Icebreaker and, and the guys in New Zealand that are really doing some pretty amazing stuff. It's still more or less treated like a commodity in Australia. Um, and it can be argued that it's still that the industry is in terminal decline. Um, I spent six months as a wool buyer way back in the mid 1990s down in Geelong. And that was a um, pretty good indication that wool wasn't for me. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing product. It's fantastic, but I think we need to get some um, need to get some some better marketing. And marketing isn't always the answer. I know that um, we're probably focused on one customer too much. Because um, you could talk about wool all day and probably annoy a hell of a lot of people who are doing a great job on farm. Um, but I we haven't really like we saw a few sheep last year because I bought some merino weather lambs to trade. But in reality, we haven't shown a sheep in 13 years. So I'm probably not really qualified to speak about wool. And it's, and it's not something you'd get into without some major change to the industry. Uh, we're, we're looking at buying, a, buying a, a share of a sheep business in New Zealand at the moment that revolves around wool. But it's, um, it's a pretty innovative um, product. It's not for clothing. So, but that's different. Um, but in Australia, I, I'm not overly interested i'm more interested in producing meat in australia well you made an interesting point there about how wool is in is internal decline yeah yeah but you could probably argue the same about sheep as well potentially maybe not terminal decline not the same but what is our sheep flock at it's pretty much been on a downward trajectory almost since the probably probably since the wool reserve scheme uh ended yeah um, do you think do you think there'll be more people moving towards sheep? With like, like Matt and I did a presentation before a couple of weeks ago about how you know grain prices are pretty flat over the course of time; they don't really go up with inflation. Whereas yeah. lamb prices have gone up high, cattle prices have gone up high, um, but there doesn't seem to be people moving into the industry. It doesn't seem to be sort of encouraging yeah. people to say, "Like, I'm going to." set up a sheep enterprise like there's very few of them when you say uh, that though andrew you're sorry you're talking you're talking about the herd coming down right i'm oh, sorry yeah, the yeah. flock coming down i should say flock coming down um since the 90s but if you look at say the 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 lamb crop each year if you go back a you know decade and a half or, or nearly 20 20 years back now your your lamb crop was about you know 14 million head a year whereas now it's you know fairly regularly into the 20 million level and that's on and that's on the declining flock size so i think so producing more from most, less yeah to a degree and and that's also so that, that's, that's, that's that's why we got you here matt 
you know, to give us the some change tracks. in dynamic. The change in dynamic, exactly that decline was the was the decline of the wool sector, and and the prime lamb sector has has very much taken part of that space up, but but doing it in a um, you know becoming more productive as they're going. So 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 there's you know there has been a bit of an expansion, I guess, if you look at numbers of lambs on the ground. Yeah, definitely. But I think you're right. The sheep industry is is in a bit of danger of how do we turn around that that demise in numbers. It'd be interesting to know in that demise how many weathers have moved out of the system and how many weathers have come back in. Um, there's probably some fundamentals there. Like if you go cropping, if you're a, if you're a young bloke or a young girl, the, it's an interesting industry. And, you know, like cotton and all those sort of setups, there's some great support. And it's a really in, in, interesting industry to be involved with. I think sheep... Um, probably almost needs to shake off the moleskins and blue jumper um, aspect to a certain extent. And I know that that has changed markedly and it's been fantastic that it has changed. I think we just all need to keep encouraging that change. And maybe as an industry, we need to look at, at how cotton has structured itself with those support mechanisms and work out how we can put that into, into a sheep um, industry. I think that, that could be really good. I think it's probably like a case of new ideas. You know, like, a, I don't know, are you, are you involved in any of those sort of groups or do you just concentrate? I know the, the, I've spoken to people in the grains industry and a lot of yeah. people say, I'm just going to concentrate. I'm not interested in being involved in X group or Y group. All I'm going to concentrate on is my business and my profitability and the industry can sort itself out. But I guess that's that's a bit of a challenge is that the industry needs new ideas, not the same old, the same old things from the good old days. You know, she'll be right. You know, we'll just we'll just do what we did in, you know, 1950, 1960. <clears throat> but like, yeah. like you say, new ideas. Well, I'm I'm probably yeah I'm probably a little bit inward looking at the moment, and because we've got so much on in our own businesses, um, but I'd I'd really like to get involved if there were like you know a maybe an industry-wide farm management group or open discussions. And, and I think it's open discussions where people don't always agree with each other. And I think we need to encourage debate and and ideas that might seem pretty abrasive to start with. But that's where you get the new ideas from and the breakthroughs. And I think if we have industry groups or 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 however it's structured and everyone agrees with each other, we're probably not going to move forward. You kind of need people involved that are, that are going to come up with the, the 1% is that everyone looks at them and thinks you're a bloody idiot, but they might go home and think about it and say, well, you know, that, that's not exactly how we might want to be involved with that idea, but we can take a bit out of it or change it around a bit. Um, so, oh, yeah, it'd be interesting. Like, I, I agree with you because I think there's this... this... I don't know whether it's come from consultants or something, but there's this view that everything has got to be positive and you've got to avoid conflict wherever possible and you've just got to agree with everything that everyone says. But the reality is that, you know, with disagreement actually comes evolution and, and, and the movement of, of products. So I guess there's, I'm going to go back to, you know, Scottish expression. Okay. You know, too much agreement kills the conversation. And, and that, that works well in Scotland because nobody ever agrees on anything. So at least we've got an excuse for it. But 
but I think you're and right. Between like, between the three of us, Andrew, we're all in agreement that um the disagreement's important. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not quite sure about that. Maybe we should stop agreeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like I, I, I like putting stuff on social media just to to stimulate debate. And you get obviously get the odd comment that tells you to pull your head in, and that's fine and probably sometimes I should, but if it stimulates debate and gets people thinking and talking amongst themselves and sharing ideas, then that's a great way that we can all communicate and, and move things forward. I think what's it's your like... um what's your what's your social media handle, Andrew? If any of those people out there want to follow you, I'm pretty sure it's not something easy to remember, like Sheep Watcher or um. No, like it's, uh, on Twitter it's Freshy1973, which tells you how old I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... But, but I think strong opinions are important. You know, I, I've, I've been told off from my strong opinions in the past, mainly by my wife uh, and my, my other wife, Matt Douglas. Uh, <laughs> but, but debate's important. And, that, and that's actually, a lot of people, you know, say that, oh, I hate social media and whatnot. But I think a lot of good ideas come from social media and a lot of good, robust debate, as long as it's civil. Uh, you know, yeah, we, Matt, Matt and I quite often debate with uh, a guy called Jimmy Jai, Who's an, anon- who's an anonymous troll who uh, is anti-live export, anti-meat consumption. But he's been harass- harassing us for about three years. <laughs> we're, try- we're trying to get him on the podcast. We're, try- we're trying to get him on the podcast. Him. But but at the end of the day, we we actually are, he's, I wouldn't say he's necessarily completely civil with us, but we, 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 we try to maintain a bit of civility. And that's maybe that's part of Matt's training as a livestock leader. And, and his move to become a master debater. Um, but, but, but yeah, I think just keep the strong opinions up and uh, let's move on with new ideas. But, but, Matt, but Andrew, we, we're about to run out of time. Uh, the, the clock is ticking down before we have to put some more coins in the meter on Zoom. You wouldn't want to do that if you're Scottish, you know, pay for anything. Exactly, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll have to, uh, <laughs> Couldn't resist that one, sorry. <laughs> it's... Uh, I'm just noting down all this racial abuse I receive. I write, I write it in my jota. Yeah. Uh, so, have you got anything else to add, Andrew? Before we, before we, before we go, before we start um, the music up. Any, any pearls of wisdom? Yeah, I, I, no, I don't have too many pearls of wisdom at all. Um, I'd like to see a bit more autumn rain so we can get it, get a bit of feed in. It's still pretty dry here. We had a lot of rain in January, February, but it's dried off now. And um, yeah, just. Keep supporting the industry, and let's all keep move keep moving forward. Really, and uh, and let's agree to disagree. That's it. That's a, good, <laughs> that's a good finish point. I reckon Andrew will do the wind up if you like. If you've um, enjoyed this, listeners, um, make sure to share it with your friends and family. Um, as Andrew says as well, if you did enjoy it, share it with your enemies. We don't care who listens as long as they listen. Um, Andrew Freshwater, you've made some great points today. I really appreciate you coming on. I think maybe we'll get you on for another segment down the track when things develop again. It's always good to have a, a um, not a provocative thinker, but a, but, a, but a good thinker on that's not scared to um, put out those ideas. So um, appreciate yeah, no you coming on. Yeah, appreciate you coming on a lot. And um, I think that's it. Andrew will wind it up. And um, I think, guys, thanks for, thanks for listening. And um, see you when you've got nothing on. Ciao for now. Thank you.